Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal. Joining me for this episode is my good friend and former pastor, Scott Chernock. Scott retired a few years ago after 40 years of pastoral ministry and now assists the pastoral staff at Third Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And so, Scott Chernock, it's great to see you, and thanks for joining me for this episode of The Humble Skeptic. Well, good to see you. I'm pleased to be here with you and humbled <laughs> to be asked to participate. In I this see what discussion. you did there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so on this program, we'll be discussing the parables of Jesus. Not all the parables, of course, uh, since that would require a year's worth of programs. But we will be discussing the nature of a parable, why Jesus chose to teach in this way. And then we'll attempt to unpack a few of the parables that really get to the heart of his message. So right off the bat, what would you say is the meaning of the word parable? Well, it comes from the Greek combination of two words to throw or cast alongside something. So it's presenting the truth from a different perspective in a more illustrative way Mm -hmm. of, uh, we would call it a story, an an illustration of something that you place against a truth in order to make the truth more visible to whoever the audience happens to be at that time. We, We find parables and stories like this in the Old Testament. So what examples come to mind? Oh, I think of, of, um, Nathan and David, when David mm. sinned uh, with Bathsheba. Second Samuel 12. Yes, and Nathan comes and tells him a story about a man and his sheep whom he loved and another who stole it from him. and A very wealthy man who stole it. A very wealthy man. Who <laughs> with takes, lots of sheep. Who, who takes a, a much beloved sheep away yeah. from a very poor man, and um, David becomes very enraged over that story. and Hang that guy. Yes, yes. He, he committed a very serious crime and needs to be punished for it. And then Nathan comes to the point and says, you are the man. You are the man. Yeah, the story that was thrown alongside the reality of David's sin came in under the radar. Yeah. Jesus does this too, doesn't he? Where he will give parables that kind of come in under the radar and confound his enemies. Oh, yes. 
I think a, a couple of times in the Synoptic Gospels where the writers record and the Pharisees or the scribes perceived that he was speaking about yeah. them, and they got the point. Some have argued that Jesus taught in parables because he was basically a master communicator, and he really knew how to tell stories that would captivate an audience. Do you think that's a good way to, to understand the parables of Jesus? Well, certainly he was a master communicator. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the response was that people were amazed at his authority. He was not teaching like the scribes and the Pharisees. It was different than they had heard, but it was a way of communicating profound truth in ways that were understandable to his disciples and his followers. But that's the key, isn't it? The disciples and his followers were the ones who were given the keys right. to the parables. Yes, he was a master communicator, but as he explains why he told parables, I mean, he says specifically in Matthew 13, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. What can we learn from Jesus' own explanation as to why he speaks in parables. Well, I think from the very quote there in Matthew 13 that's referenced and from Isaiah 6, um, the first part of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Yeah, that's that year. famous scene where he's, yeah. he's coming undone as he sees God enthroned in his glory. Yeah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord. And after Isaiah confesses that he is a man of unclean lips and lives among a people of unclean lips, the, the angelic being purifies his tongue by taking the coal from the altar and touching his mouth with it. Actually, he calls it a, a symbolic atonement. Yeah. Even a holy prophet like Isaiah is unable to stand in God's presence. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so if, once you get that clear, I mean, Jesus has problems with the scribes and the Pharisees because they focus on their own righteousness. But here in Isaiah 6, it's not just an average rabbi or Pharisee. It's the best you can get in Judaism. Right. The best that Israel could achieve in terms of the men who are faithful to Yahweh are flawed characters. David himself is the king who is better than Saul, and he fails as Nathan had to confront right. him. Isaiah is coming apart at the seams. He's saying, I am undone. But those who hear the censure and repent and believe that God is the Savior— especially as you follow Isaiah's trajectory all the way through from right. chapter 6 all the way to 53, and that he is the one that rescues. That helps us to see that Jesus' mission is the same, right? Well, he said, I came to seek this and save the lost. Yeah. And it is the lost whom he is seeking that respond in faith. You think of Luke 15 with the parable of the lost sheep. It's the shepherd that goes seeking the one, and the sheep responds by acquiescing to being found by the good shepherd. Yeah. The sheep does nothing but is found and brought back by the good shepherd. So part of the reason that Jesus speaks in parables, it seems, is to confound those who are righteous in their own estimation. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, he said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentant sinners. And it's those who recognize their need and respond to that message, recognizing that, yes, I'm the sinner that he's referring to. I'm the lost one that he's referring to. I'm the rebellious one that he's referring to in this message. 
and they respond then in faith. There in, in Matthew 13, it's the disciples to whom have been given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, um, because they are the ones who are responding to it. They are the ones who he has come to seek and to save. You know, Peter himself says at the very first instance where, where he met Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Right. Yeah. It's different yeah. from the typical response of the Pharisees, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting in Zephaniah chapter three, God pronounces woes to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and says this, woe to the oppressive city who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She accepts no correction. She is referring to the leaders of Israel, of Jerusalem. She does not trust in Yahweh. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Basically, they're ravenous. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. And then in verse 11, he declares that a day is coming when I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of Yahweh. This is talking about Jesus' ministry, isn't it? Oh, yeah, 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 what he was going to do. He's actually coming to judge the leadership of Israel that is the proudly exultant ones. He came to remove them from their office. Yeah, um, the self-righteous, the proud, the, the powerful saw no need for his message, and yet it was the humble and broken of heart that responded to it. One of the things that parables do, I think, is they provoke questions. So immediately after he starts teaching in this way, his disciples say, what are you doing? Why are you teaching in this way? It inspires curiosity. You, you may even liken it to like the Socratic method, where he is teaching in a way that provokes even a little bit of confusion in order for the individual to become curious and to try to resolve the confusion. And that's a, that's a method of teaching that I don't think is common here in the States. <laughs> yeah, it, it forces you to think, Right, certainly. Ultimately requires the Lord to explain what he's saying to his disciples, but it certainly engaged them enough that yeah. they listened and said, what are you talking about? And those who sort of you know heard him speak broadly without getting the keys, a lot of them would be maybe turned off and say, I have no idea what this guy's saying, and, and they move on. Whereas those who are saying, wait a minute, something there rings true, and they have questions. And, and I'm wondering what you think about this. When, when he says in verse 12 of Matthew 13, for the one who has, more will be given, mm-hmm. and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I'm wondering if part of that is those who lean on their own wisdom or understanding, or perhaps even their own righteousness, righteousness. are the ones who, they're not interested in Jesus' message. They don't get it. And what they have even will be taken away. Their whole system, their temple, it's all going away within a generation. Mm -hmm. But those who are sort of leaning in and begin to have questions, the little thing that they have, a mustard seed side of faith. Yeah, they're responding to the light they have. And in that response, I think he's saying that you'll get more light, get more understanding. And I think, too, in Matthew 13, in verse 10, after Jesus spoke the parable of the, of the soils, it says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? So this was after the event of speaking the parable. Right, to the crowd. So Yeah, to the crowd. So the crowd is gone, and now it's the disciples who come to him privately. 
And he then explains to them why he does this. It's because it's being given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not. Even what they have heard is going to vanish away, yeah. take away from them. It's not going to bear any fruit at all. Uh, sort of like the parable. Um, yeah, the parable. falls on the rocky ground, yeah. it's taken away. Yeah. Uh, so they have received it, but it, it does them no good. It's going to be taken away. But the disciples have received it. The, the word has taken root, and it's going to bear even more fruit in them. Do you think it's possible to connect this whole idea to what he says in the Beatitudes that, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. So the little that they have is thirst or hunger. And it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. Not they, the, you know, they, they recognize their spiritual poverty, right. not that they have any righteousness. And it's these who are going to be ultimately blessed. Yeah. You know, another thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about the parable of the seed is, you know, he casts the seed into the ground. I mean, I think Jesus says the seed is the word. Some have tried to argue that it's the capital W word. It's Jesus himself. My own perspective is that it's it's the word of the gospel. And there's an image of it in the seed itself that, as Paul will say, the seed has to die first, and then it causes new life. So there is a kind of an image of death and resurrection in the idea of the seed that's implanted in every one in whom it bears fruit. Yeah, I, I think he's referring to the gospel here that's being proclaimed. Um, in fact, later on in, in verse 19, he describes it as the word of the kingdom. Yeah. The yeah, word the that he is being, yeah. that he is proclaiming because the kingdom of God has arrived. And it's that message that he is proclaiming that Messiah is here. Yeah. He is the long-awaited one. He is indeed the word, but it's the word that he is now communicating, that he's preaching. Some people have difficulty with that language of the gospel announcement of the good news of the kingdom because the gospel hasn't happened yet. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So how could he be preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom? How do you reconcile that language that we find in the early part of the gospels with what people today refer to the preaching of the gospel? Well, the gospel is Christ himself in his person and work. And there is still an aspect of his work that was yet to be accomplished, and yet the fulfillment was there among them. It, it's Christ. And everything that had been prophesied about him is coming to pass. He is there. The Messiah is there. He has been um, divinely recognized as Messiah at his baptism and now this is the good news. The kingdom is here because the king is here. So the good news is that all that the prophets have anticipated about the coming messianic king has now come to pass. The king is in your midst. Believe the good news. And right. there's more good news to come. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, the, the, the whole story is not told yet. Right. But the main character who's the focus of the story is yeah. here. Now in Matthew 13, 34... We're told that Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak anything to them without speaking in a parable. Some, I think, have used this as a way to criticize the fourth gospel, which in their view presents a much different Jesus, you know, who did not teach in parables, but seems to have a much more propositional and theological approach. What do you make of that critique? They may be wanting to fit parable into a specific form that unless it has the kind of form that we read here about the, the word being the seed and the soils, the, the story heart, yeah. yeah, this story form. Um, but he does speak in John's gospel in a lot of illustrations. A lot of comparisons. Are, a lot yeah. of comparisons, yeah. a lot of contrasts, a lot of parabolic kinds of statements. Yes. 
when he speaks about being the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a parable. Yes, it is. I am the good shepherd. But he begins with a story about the, the sheepfold and the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Interestingly about that one in John 10 is that he starts in a way that is sort of like in Matthew 13, where to the crowds he says one thing, and then the narrator steps in and he says this figure of speech he used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So then he gives more definition, just like in Matthew 13, where he gives them the keys. Mm -hmm. That's when he goes on to talk about the fact that he is the good shepherd, and he is the one who will give life to the sheep and die for the sheep. Yeah, he's the one that will never leave them. He's, mm-hmm. he's not like the hireling. Uh, he, he's the one who secures them, who will bring them to final salvation. No one will snatch them out of his hand. So it's a very um, parable type of, of teaching. John's gospel is filled with comparisons. Jesus keeps saying in the middle of an important festival, he is the true manna from heaven during Passover. He okay. is the true water from the rock at the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the the true light of the world, you know, in the midst of the great candelabras. Right. He's, he's comparing himself to these hugely significant Exodus themes and how they are being presented by the temple liturgy. And yet he says things like, one greater than the temple is here. Yeah. So John's gospel is doing this kind of thing over and over and over again. It begins that way. In John 1, the word became flesh and templed, tabernacled yeah. among us. He uses that temple, tabernacle imagery uh, at the very beginning as to characterize the life and ministry of Christ. Yeah. And they saw his glory, but it's a veiled glory. That's, he's not walking around with a halo. Uh, they see his glory in action as he demonstrates it in John's gospel. It's through these sign acts, like turning water into wine. But in John 10 in particular... He says, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes on in that chapter to describe himself as the good shepherd, and that is essentially alluding to the same kind of figure that was very prominent in the Old Testament. I mean, you think of Psalm 23, 23. uh, the Lord is my shepherd, or Isaiah chapter 40, where God describes the fact that he is the good shepherd. He will come and shepherd his sheep. Um, Ezekiel uses this language as well. But think once again of the parable that we talked about earlier with Nathan to David. I mean, David was the the shepherd who was called to be king of Israel, to shepherd the people. And yet he... In this parable, Nathan Nathan tells David, you aren't really a good king. You're a thief. You've stolen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, all who've come before me. Most of the time you hear people referring to this, they, they talk about the messianic pretenders, the false messiahs. But he says, all who came before me. He says, the hireling cares nothing for the sheep. Like David, all the kings of Israel are related to David, and they did not do like David did. Right, yeah. But the best of them were rebuked by the prophets as being thieves. <laughs> yeah, they, they are faithless shepherds, yeah. and he's the one true and shepherd. Jesus is the one true shepherd. Yeah. And I think this condemns viewing the Old Testament in a moralistic kind right. of way. You know, it's so often we hear, well, be like David. Yeah. No, don't be like Especially David. Especially certain chapters. <laughs> yeah. They're key chapters to a full. Yeah, don't be like <laughs> any of them in the Old Testament, except for Christ. In fact, there in John 10, 
John specifically says in 10.6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. John recognizes here this parable type of teaching, even though it's not called a parable. He was using this extended illustration to communicate truth about himself as being the one true faithful shepherd of Israel. Yeah. In John 3, also in the Lord's encounter with Nicodemus there by night, who is a shepherd of Israel, right? Um, one of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus speaks to him there in very illustrative ways. You have to be born again. Mm-hmm. You have to be born again from above. So it's an extended illustration there to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is intrigued by that and responds to that. Yeah, he's intrigued and it provokes questions, like we've been saying. Yeah, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? What What are you saying? Yeah. What you see early on is confusion. But by the end of the gospel, he's there. He's at the at the tomb. At, at the tomb, Helping he's he's with Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it illustrates what we find in, in Matthew thirteen that to the one who has exactly. more will be given. Nicodemus was responding positive to the little light he got there, and by the end of the gospels, we see him there at the tomb, risking his own life mm-hmm. for this Messiah along with Joseph of Arimathea. And I think that says something to, you know, our listeners who may have, they may struggle at times with questions and doubts. Keep tugging at those threads. The more you tug at the threads and the more you engage with this amazing book, the more light will come at the end of that longer process. But it may not be instantaneous. No, and doubt is not unbelief. No. Um, Doubt is honest question. Right. Think even after his resurrection with with Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, Um, but he had some sincere questions. And until those questions were resolved, he still had the question. Yes. Yeah. And we we are told not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see which are of God. Or one of my favorite lines is from Proverbs 14, which says, the simple man believes everything. But the wise man gives thought to his steps. So we, we shouldn't believe everything. We should have doubts. We are not to believe everything, especially today with the internet. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of Maybe lot don't of believe up. anything right. with the internet. Exactly. Yeah. You know, just keep following and studying and reading this book. And sometimes what you'll find is the study of this book leads you to doubt a lot of the things you've heard <laughs> over the years, e- even in churches. Yeah. I think in John 6, with that extended illustrative story about I am the bread of light Mm -hmm. and come down from heaven and so on. And several places there, Jesus says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's making a separation there between those who will respond, those who won't, those who have the little light who are responding to it. And finally, there toward the end of the chapter, it says... They all left, except for the disciples. And he says, are you going to go away too? And Peter responds, where are we going to go? Yeah. You alone have the words of life. And I think that's kind of the the, the Christian mentality is that we still have questions. Yes. We still have uncertainties. We, there's still things we don't know, but where else are we going to go? Yeah. You have the words of life. I may not fully understand them yet and what you're saying. The question is, will we ever? I mean, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Right. So I think that just may be 
a component of our finitude. Yes, but I've seen enough. Yeah. I think even in eternity, we're still going to be learning. We're still going to be growing. Right. That we won't have the effects of sin dulling our intellect and our understanding. But, but there's still an ocean to explore. We, yeah, we, <laughs> there's still an infinite ocean yeah. with finite minds. You know. Folks, The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast, and there are many ways you can help. You can upgrade to a paid subscription via Substack for around $5 per month, make a one-time gift, or set up recurring gifts. You can find more information about these giving options in the show notes or by clicking on the Donate tab at HumbleSkeptic.com. If you make a donation of any size this month or become a subscriber, we'll send you a link to download the song that you happen to be listening to right now. Welcome back to the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I'm talking with my good friend Scott Chernock about the parables of Jesus. When I first asked you to uh, join me in a conversation about Jesus' parables, you expressed interest in discussing the parables found in Luke 15. What are these parables and why are you drawn to them in particular? Well, the, the parables themselves, there are three parables there in Luke 15. They're all about seeking the lost and finding the lost. First of all, there's a parable about the shepherd who loses one sheep out of a hundred. He leaves the 99. He goes, Seems similar to John 10. Yeah, very much. A good shepherd goes yeah. looking for the sheep. Uh, the second parable is a woman who's lost one coin out of 10, and she tears her house upside down trying to find this coin. She does, and then she rejoices with her neighbors. And then the most Probably the most well-known and the most extensive of the three parables are the parables of the two sons, or we know it as the parable of the prodigal son, but they're two prodigal sons. Yeah. They're just lost in different ways, and of the father seeking them both out. Um, so they're intriguing to me, especially the, the third, because I think many times the popular understanding of that psalm is in error. Excuse me, psalm, the parable. Popular understanding of the, of the of parable the, of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. In that what is really being emphasized is the seeking of the father mm. of both the sons. It's not that this one went off and he was particularly bad and he repents and he comes back because he doesn't repent until he's confronted with the sacrificial love of the father. Mm. And then all of his plans vanish. And then the father seeks the second son. And here we have the contrast between those who are responding 
to the light they have and get more and the ones who are rejecting it and lose even that. Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, let's start at the beginning of the very first parable. Let's start with uh, Luke 15, 1 through 7. We'll talk about the parable of lost sheep in detail. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Very, very similar to the themes, as I said, uh, in John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. And here, it's very clear that he's the one that goes out and seeks and finds and brings home the lost. And it's interesting that he puts the scribes and the Pharisees in the place of the shepherd. Hmm. Which man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one, doesn't go out and find it? Which he's really indicting them there because they're not doing that. Which is what Ezekiel says. You know, you are faithless shepherds and I am going to come and be the shepherd of the sheep. Right. And... Even the analogy that he's using here of a sheep and a shepherd would have been repulsive to the scribes and the Pharisees Mm. because only the lowest of low were shepherds. They were just one step above tax collectors Mm. in the uh, Jewish hierarchy of social structure. Um, They dwelt out in the wilderness by themselves. They were constantly defiled because they were dealing with dead bodies, Mm. dead animals. And so even to compare the scribes and Pharisees to shepherds was to indict them in their attitudes. One of the things that I think is interesting about this parable is that Jesus in this parable seems to be alluding to Isaiah 53, verse 6 in particular, all we like sheep have gone astray. Like what? which one of you, if your sheep has gone astray, so these are the ones Jesus came to seek, the ones that have gone astray. Here in Isaiah 6, it's all of us have gone astray. This is the point we were making earlier. Yeah. We're all lost and that we have turned everyone to his own way and Yahweh has laid upon him the suffering servant and the of us all. Yeah. I think he's really setting the stage for the parable of the two sons where the one is lost, he knows he's lost, he's found and brought back into the family. Um, and so the the joy then is over this one who repents, shows his repentance by his submission to being found by the one who came to seek and save the lost. And the scribes and Pharisees don't want that. They don't want to have anything to do with acknowledging that they are lost, that they need this Messiah who's come to seek and save the lost. Two things come to mind, especially when you compare the way this parable ends. It ends with good news and rejoicing, just like Isaiah 53 does, right? Mm -hmm. So it ends with Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep. How does Isaiah 53 end? It ends with the suffering servant having found the wayward sheep and atoned for their sin through his death and being laid in the grave. And then he sees light, and then he is dividing spoils in a victory celebration. Yeah, he'll see the satisfaction of his soul and what has accomplished. So very similar to the thematic message of this parable. Yeah, very much with, with the shepherd finding those who are lost, who have wandered astray. And and the implication, I think, in, in this parable in Luke is that 
really all hundred have gone astray. There's just 99 who are all huddled together, but they're equally lost. Right. Yeah. His message again and again to those in Israel who feel like they are the righteous ones, they get the strongest rebuke, don't they? Over and over again. Yeah. Let's talk about the next parable here in Luke 15, uh, the parable of the lost coin, which starts at verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, Jesus says, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp or sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What stands out to you about this parable? As you compare it to the previous one, the previous one was an animal who, by his own actions, got lost. Mm-hmm. Here we have an inanimate object that was lost. That was just its state. Somehow it became lost, and there was nothing that this coin could do to make itself be found. Yeah. It had to be found by someone else. Mm-hmm. And so this, this woman went seeking, turning her house upside down in order to find this one coin. She did all the work. But at least at least in this parable, the coin can't resist the savior's seeking, right? Because in, right. in the parable, the sheep, the sheep are going wayward. And perhaps even while the shepherd's trying to find him, he keeps going further. The coin just stays, at least it stays put. <laughs> yeah. Well, even in the parable of the lost sheep, it's when the shepherd finds it, he lays it on his shoulders. Right. Yeah. Uh, even though it may have been resisting somewhat, he yeah. lays it on his shoulders. Uh, the iniquity of us all fell on mm-hmm. him. Which is a theme that comes out as, as Jesus tells this parable in John 10, because he does there talk about the fact that he came to give his life for the sheep. Right. You know, that doesn't come out in this parable, but when you put all these things together, all the imagery together, and then you compare it with Isaiah 53, yeah. the puzzle pieces come together. He's doing all the seeking. He's doing all the finding. He's doing all the bearing. He's doing all the work. Really, the, the sheep, the coin are both passive, and in their repentance, it is shown that they are submitting to his finding grace yeah. and responding to it. One of the problems, I think, at least in my own experience, is that when you read a text from an ancient period, you tend to interpret it according to your own expectations or your own assumptions about reality. And this doesn't seem to be that significant. It's like a silver coin. What is it, a quarter? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a, that. Well, I, I think the Greek is a drachma, so that would be a day's wage. It's a, it's a very, it's a lot of money. Very so, important. There, there's debate as to what the coin was. Was it part of a necklace, which would be some kind of inheritance that mm-hmm. would be passed on? Or was this the, the family income for a week? Because there's 10 coins. Mm-hmm. So it's 10 days wages. Um, and if, if it's a wife, then it's obvious that she has been entrusted to provide for the family, and suddenly she loses 10% of yeah. the family income. Yeah. That's it's, something you talk to your neighbors about. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. But the, as you said, that all the emphasis on this parable is on God. The other thing is that this particular woman is in the role of God, Right. And he, he's done this before, like the hen gathering the chicks. Oh, yeah. He, he has feminine yeah. illustrations of his... a little strange in the ancient world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, women were not highly right. regarded in the social structure, but it emphasizes his tenderness, his care. Like the, you know, Jesus said, I, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks under my wings, but you would not. And Or one of the parables he tells early on in Matthew 13 was of a woman who 
uh, worked leaven into a loaf. Right. She permeates the whole loaf. You look at the the numbers there. It's a huge amount of dough at the end, but it rises. It just likes as the kingdom spreads, which I think uh, you can maybe compare that imagery to a text like Daniel 2, where the stone cut from no human hands crashes human statues and kingdoms and it becomes the whole earth. earth. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is here and it's now expanding and growing. Right. Interesting thing is the way he tells the parable in there in Matthew 13 is with a woman. Yeah. And even in um, John 4, where he's talking to the woman at the well. Yeah. She's the one who's responding to the message. Mm -hmm. In fact, she's a Samaritan woman, which is even lower on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. Jews don't talk with Samaritans. She even knows this, and and much less, you know, she's a woman. This is a it's an unusual conversation to begin with. But we we sometimes miss that because we don't understand those cultural differences. The right. the way things used to be in that place and time that stands out as being kind of shocking. Oh yeah, yeah. For Jesus to speak to the woman was shocking to his disciples. Mm-hmm. Even going to Samaria was, was shocking. Yeah, because, they wanted to go around. To yeah, them. Jesus always went around <laughs> Samaria, but he and it says he had to go through Samaria. Yeah. So now the parable of the prodigal son, uh, which as you say is probably wrongly named because there are two sons in this parable. Uh, This begins at verse 11 of Luke 15. Right. And he says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and, and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Let's stop here and just kind of evaluate some of the elements of this parable thus far. Yeah, it's one of those things where we're not part of that ancient culture, so it doesn't strike us as shocking as it would to a first-century Jew in Palestine. Right from the very beginning in verse 12, we realize, or would have realized, the audience would have realized, something's wrong with this family. It makes it clear there are two sons, and so the emphasis is going to be on the two sons, not just the one Mm -hmm. son that we are most familiar with. And it's shocking in verse 12 that the younger son comes to the father. And the father doesn't speak first. It's the younger son. Now, he would have been down on the totem pole in terms of seniority in the family. There's the father, then the firstborn, and then the younger son. He was completely out of place going to his father with this request. Uh, So immediately, hearers of this would say, something is dysfunctional in this family, that the younger son is going to the father 
And the request he's making is absolutely shocking. Yeah, you don't request an inheritance until after the father's died. Right. He's in essence saying, you're dead to me. This family's dead to me. All I want's my stuff. Give me my stuff, and I'm out of here. So he was in essence doing something that was absolutely shocking. Also, it would have been incumbent upon the oldest son to intervene and act as mediator between the father and the younger mm -hmm. son. But what do we find with the older son? Silence yeah. until the end of the story. So from the very beginning, we're introduced to this very dysfunctional situation. And the father, rather than banishing the son, acquiesces and divides the property. Yeah. And I think it's important to see there in verse 12, it says he divided his property between them. And so uh, according to Deuteronomy and the law of inheritance, the oldest son would get two-thirds, the youngest son would get one-third. And so if that's what happened here, the youngest son gets a third, which means that immediately the entire wealth of the family has been decreased by one-third. It's something we don't really think about when you go back to that first century culture, you look at the way property and inheritance worked, then you say... What he did is violating the norms of that period in a shocking way. Yes. And then we find him, you know, hanging out with pigs. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't shocked by the first part, yeah. then you say, okay, he, not only is he hanging out with pigs in this Gentile country, he wants to eat what the pigs eat. Yeah. What kind of a story is this? Well, and, and in uh, Israel at that time, they had a shaming ceremony that the father had every right to subject this son to, in which he would be publicly shamed for what he had done to the family. And uh, he would have to make amends to the father. He would have to kiss his feet. Uh, this would be done publicly before the whole community. So he would be shamed because of what he's done to this family. And then he would have to serve as a slave to his father which is what he says in his own head, you know, as he's thinking. That when he gets desperate enough. As he's a long way off, his father sees him and does something that's also shocking. What, what would be shocking about the way the father reacts? Well, first of all, the father's been looking for him. Yeah. He's been looking. He hasn't given up on him. He's been seeking this lost son. Just like in the other parables. Just like the other parables. Yeah. The father here has been constantly seeking. He has not given up on him. And then when he sees his son coming, when he is a long way off, it says, the father immediately feels compassion for him. Rather than, now we're going to exact our pound of flesh. Yeah. We're going to teach him a lesson. Yeah. And that's what the community would be expecting. The son's coming back, so now we're going to have the shaming ceremony. And he is going to have to subjugate himself to the father. He's going to have to become as a slave if he wants to come back into this family. Uh, but we see the exact opposite happening here. When the father sees him, he didn't feel anger. He didn't feel a need to avenge his honor. He felt compassion. Kind of like Joseph, when his brothers who had done horrible things, he weeps. Yeah. He brings them before his counsel and then he weeps with compassion at his brothers. And he says, what you meant for evil... God, God meant for good. Yeah, yeah. So we have the heart of the Father revealed here. It's a loving heart. It's a compassionate, it's a yeah. merciful heart. And then it says, and he ran. 
which in that day, a father, an Oriental father, would never run. Especially not a wealthy landowner. Not That's a wealthy. the servants do. Right, They right. do all the errands. They run. He would be wearing a long robe. And in order to run, he would have to pull up his robe and expose his legs, which was a sign of humiliation. Mm-hmm. And so what we find here, when it says he ran, he humbled himself. And he embraces him and kisses him. A sign of welcome, a sign of reconciliation, a sign of forgiveness before the sun says anything. Anything, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is no list of here's what you need to do. But then he says, you know, go kill the fatted calf. This, again, we don't really understand what's involved in that. I mean, killing a fatted calf is a, that's a huge deal. And it is not the kind of thing you do for a meal. No, this is a big party. Yeah. He, at his own expense, kills this fatted calf for this celebration. Again, a theme we've seen in all these parables. Right. It's a grand celebration. And then he says, give him the best robe and the signet ring. This again, before any of the speech uh, that he, the guy had planned for himself came out, he gets the best robe and the signet ring. So what he's saying is take one of my robes, clothe him with my garments, put my robe on him, put my ring on him, put my shoes on him, which we have a beautiful picture of the imputed righteousness yeah. of Christ. And sonship, not slavery. Right. He, in his own mind, he his rehearsal, I mean, a lot of people think this is the moment of repentance. Yeah, in verse 17, when he came to himself. He comes to himself, and they think that's repentance, and he's got a speech in his mind. Even the grammar, I think, is against that in that How verse. How so? In verse 17, it's when he came to himself, literally it says when he looked inside himself. Mm. He's coming up with plan B. I, he's I, not having his best life now. No. <laughs> he's having his worst life. <laughs> in fact, he's saying to himself... My father's slaves, my father's servants, the ones who work on his estate, they have food, they have lodging, they're better off than I am. So here's my plan. I'll go back and beg my father, I can become one of your hired servants because that's better than what I've got right now. So when it says he came to himself, it's really, he developed plan B. He's going to work himself into the good graces of his father by his own works, by his own efforts. And this was the Jewish view of repentance. Yes. You eventually do enough to earn your way back into the good graces of the father. Making amends. Making amends. Or, or the way the, it was said in Latin, doing penance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's got his plan of penance here. He's going to earn his way back and he rehearses his story. I'm not worthy to be called your son, so now treat me as one of your hired servants and give me a job so that I can eventually repay you, earn my way back into your good graces, and maybe somehow come back into this family after years of proving my worth and fidelity. How how would we contrast true repentance with this religious attitude? I mean, the word repentance in Greek is metanoia, changing of mind. And you will see occasionally Jesus or John the Baptist say things like produce fruits in keeping with repentance, almost to say that producing the fruits comes out of the changing of the mind, but is not the same thing. Right. So do we want to say that making amends in this list is not the same thing as repentance? No, it's not repentance at all because he hasn't turned from himself. Hmm. To repent is to turn from myself and turn to Christ. Turn from my works to Christ's works. Turn from my... So changing your mind, the metanoia, is turning to the rescuer. Right. 
and not turning to your self-salvation. Right. He's proposing another plan of self-salvation. Yeah. And so repentance is turning from all of my self-salvation and turning to the one who alone can save me through his works and his righteousness. So what we see him doing is he's turning from, as you say, plan A to plan B. Plan B is just, I need my best life now. I'm not having it. So here's my attempt to rescue myself. Right. And so he's got the list in his head and then he comes to his father, but his father stops him before he sort of articulates his false theology and yeah. he just simply gives him grace. And his his concern was never for his father and being reconciled to his father. His concern was my father's servants are better off than I am. Mm. It was always about him. And so even in his plan, it's about how can I do this? How can I get back in his good grace? It was no concern about the father, but... The father's only concern was for the son and the relationship that had been severed and what he could do to restore or create that new relationship. The key here is that it's just, it's a complete gift. This is not something the son expects in any way, but he's just given a robe. He's given the ring. He's given sonship when he doesn't. He was asking to be a slave (laughs) and the father makes him a son. Yeah. Um, Gives him the robe which clothes him with his status, with his honor, with the respect that was due the father. Treat my son now as you would treat me. So then true repentance is accepting that gift and going to the party. Yeah, just like the sheep. What did the sheep do? It just submitted to being carried by the shepherd. Yeah. The coin submitted by being found, and there was rejoicing (laughs) there. And in fact, the son doesn't complete his speech that he had planned. Mm. When he is embraced and kissed by the Father, which in that society meant complete acceptance. Like nothing has ever happened. In fact, it's better than it's ever been um, because my Father has embraced me. He has welcomed me back. He has given me this sign of intimate affection. And now what does he say? I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Period. That's all he can say. His plan is gone. He recognizes the father is acknowledging him as a son. Right. And he says, I'm not worthy. So he's not worthy in his own estimation and in reality, and yet the father bridges the gap. Right. The father makes him worthy. Right. The father makes him worthy by giving him the father's worthiness. Yeah, right. So now when people see you, he's saying, they will see me. You have my authority. You're over all my house now. You know, we we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Who are given the ministry of reconciliation. Right. You know, to think about that image that Paul gives, which is 2 Corinthians. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We can apply this horizontally. This is the vertical picture Jesus gives in this parable, but we can apply this horizontally to others. And maybe one lesson is that we shouldn't rake people over the coals and, you know, want to get our pound of flesh when somebody has sinned against us. We are to forgive just as we have been forgiven, as Jesus will say, 70 times 7. Yeah, 70 times 7, which means there's no limit to it. Right. And Peter had a hard time with that. He did. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, how many times? As many as 7? 7 times enough? No, (laughs) 70 times 7. I think what he means by that, it's a Jewish way of talking about the ultimate jubilee. Would you agree with that? That 490 was a way of describing the... Well, it's, it's complete forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Total forgiveness. All debts would be removed. Right. Yeah. yeah. There, There is no more debt. Right. In essence, what the father is doing here is saying, what sin? 
right? What abandonment. My son was dead. Now he's now he's alive. He's been resurrected from the dead. Yeah. He has new life. He has new standing. And it's because of nothing that he has done. And he welcomes him home as if nothing had ever happened. In fact, he now has a new status, equal with the father himself. And throws a great celebration at a huge expense. Right. And invites the community who were expecting the son to be shamed, but now he is exalted. He's honored. The one who is just eating with pigs. Yes. I mean, it is a shocking story, but it gets more shocking still because in verse 25, we find the conclusion of the parable. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Then he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate, for this your brother was dead, and is alive. He was lost and is found. What do you think is the point being made here in this conclusion? Well, he leaves it open-ended here. Mm. There's no resolution. Which is odd. Yeah, but given the fact that it begins with he's speaking to the Pharisees and scribes, these parables are definitely being spoken both to them and against them. But what's odd is the other two parables in Luke 15 ended with celebration. This one goes a little bit further and is in this sort of off-key note. And there's a celebration going on, and the, the question is, are you going to join the celebration? Yeah. The ultimate point Jesus is getting at is, will the scribes and Pharisees come to the party? Right. And what's the older son saying here? He, he sees this son, who is completely unworthy, being brought into the family as a full son. Mm-hmm. And he gets angry. Just as the Pharisees were angry with Jesus. He refuses to go in. There's an invitation extended. He refuses the invitation. I mean, there's other parables where Jesus talks about inviting them to the wedding feast, inviting them to the party. And, and they said, I got to get my hair done. Yeah, they make all <laughs> kinds of excuses why they won't go in. And then they just, just go out on the highway and get yeah, whatever, whoever. whoever you can find right. and bring them in. They also were given a coat too, a, a wedding garment. Yes, and they're rejoicing while these are outside mm-hmm. grumbling. That's Matthew 22, I believe. Yeah. And, and so the father comes out and then entreats. And what does the older son say? These many years I have served you. And the tone here is one of slavish yeah. servitude. And the focus again on, I've been doing all this, where's my pay? Yeah, what, what have I gotten out of this for all of my works, all of my righteousness? He said, I've never disobeyed your command. That's not what Isaiah said. It's like, yeah, like the young <laughs> ruler. I've, I've done all these things for my youth. Mm-hmm. Which is why I got straight law. Yeah, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Not with the family, with my own friends. I've got my own friends that I'm going to hang out with. Yeah. And it's not the fathers, not the tax collector and the sinners. I have my own friends yeah. with who I associate. And then not only that, he maligns his younger son. He says, when this son of yours, not my brother. Yeah. Your son, we, we're not even part of the same family. No reconciliation there. There's, there's no reconciliation. Um, he's not even including himself in the family here. The son of yours. 
which is what the scribes and Pharisees were saying. You're eating with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. They don't want to be associated with Jesus for hanging out with these people. Right, you're right. He says, you didn't even give me a goat. You give him the fatted calf. Yeah. I didn't get a miserable little goat. And this is where my mind immediately runs to what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, to the man who works, his wages are given is his due. But to the man who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, mm-hmm. his faith is credited as righteousness. This is the contrast here between the two sons, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the son is just pleading, the, you know, the older son, he's just pleading his works, his righteousness. I've obeyed your every command. Whereas the person who, with Paul, who does not think of his relationship to God as a wage, he just says, you know, I'm ungodly. I I smell like pigs. This is the one who's given the robe of righteousness. Right. Yeah. And also in in Romans, what are you talking about there? When Paul is contrasting, you know, Jew and Gentile, he says, what benefit does a Jew have? Well, they have the oracles of God. Mm-hmm. They have the covenants. All of this belongs to them that were to lead them in repentance and faith to the true Messiah. And in fact, in Romans 2, 4, he says, don't you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Mm-hmm. So the example of the father's response to the younger son. Oh, that's a great text to mash up here with. Ought to have been a lesson to this older son that you don't earn your way into the father's graces. It's given as a gift. And you need to change your mind about your self-religion. Yes, and and repent. And go to the party. (laughs) Yeah. It says, you were always with me. All that I have is yours. But he was really refusing it because Mm -hmm. it was on his own terms. And that's where the parable sort of ends on this strange note. Right now, the estrangement is between the father and the older son. Right. Who is not going to the party. Who refuses to enter in. But he has to come in on the terms of the father. Yeah. Not on his own terms of self-righteousness and his own works. Yeah, those who come in with that attitude get the strongest rebuke from Jesus, as we see in other parables like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, here is one man who just says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And he's the one that goes home justified. Yeah. In fact, he says, the sinner. Mm. You know, there's two people standing here. I'm the sinner. And the Pharisee was promoting his own self-righteousness. He even thanked God for it. <laughs> I thank God that I'm not like these other people. Yeah. Uh, he didn't need the special robe from the Father. He, he came in decked in his own righteousness. He, apparently, he hadn't read Isaiah chapter 6, where even the holiest of, the, of Israel's prophets said, who can stand before this one? Yeah. The Holy One of Israel. I'm undone. I'm coming apart. You know, what happened with Isaiah, once he says, I'm undone, then a coal was taken from the altar, touched his lips, and his sin is atoned for symbolically in that vision. Mm-hmm. And this is what we need. We need atonement. We need God to take the initiative to cleanse us from our sin. And we need to repent and accept that gift it's the same message told in a thousand different ways, isn't it? Right. In, in, in a sense, we could say here in, in this parable in Luke 15 that the fatted calf was killed instead of the younger son yeah, being killed. Right. And the father did it. Certainly at his expense, yes. Yeah. At his expense, the, the calf died. Well, this is not just a parable that helps us to see the wickedness of those people then there. This is a parable that helps us to see our own self-righteousness, isn't it? Well, we're... We're both of the sons. Yeah. 
And I think what our Lord is saying here is there's two ways to be lost. So it's sort of like going down a, a road. There's two ways to fall in a ditch. You can either fall off in lawlessness or you can fall off in religiosity. You're equally lost. But the way back is the same. And that's repentance by turning from your own efforts at self-salvation, self-righteousness, by the grace that is ours through the finished work of Christ. Luther once said, fallen man is kind of like a, a drunk guy trying to get on a horse. He's fallen off, he climbs up and falls off on the other side. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we have difficulties on one side or the other. I think a very pastoral aspect here is that often we think, well, you know, the answer to legalism is to be a little loose mm -hmm. with the law. Or the answer to antinomianism or lawlessness, licentiousness, is a little more law. You just need to tighten up. And the answer to both is the gospel. Yeah. That Christ has done it all, and we're called back by repentance and faith and clothed in his righteousness, united to him, and made heirs and joint heirs with Christ. It's that union with Christ that only he can affect. Yeah, to trust in the one who came to give his life for the sheep. He is the holy and righteous one. This is the one who is the subject of all those sermons throughout the book of Acts, not our own to-do lists. Right. They don't yeah. reach step one, step two, step three. And with the music softly playing, here's what you need to do. They proclaim Christ from all the scriptures. Yeah, I just look at the very first sermon in Acts 2. You know, just reciting the, the Old Testament and they're cut to the quick. What do we do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Yeah. Well, my guest for these programs has been the Reverend Scott Chernock, and we've been talking about the parables of Jesus, in particular the parables we find in Luke 15. Scott, thanks so much for joining me for this program and, and illuminating the richness of the gospel that we find in these parables. Oh, thank you for the privilege. We haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> well, we'll have to invite you back, so we'll do some more scratching. Okay, we'll scratch any time. When you pick me up, it wasn't because I was reaching out. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I've been talking with Scott Chernock about the parables of Jesus. If you're a paid subscriber to the show, you'll find a link in the show notes to download an MP3 copy of the song you just heard by Julian Smith. This song is not available via Spotify, Apple Music, or any other outlet, but only via HumbleSkeptic.com. If you are not yet a subscriber, you can find a link to become one in the show notes, where you can also find links to other recommended resources related to the parables. 
I'll also send you a link to download the song if you make a donation of any size to help support this podcast. The web address is humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.